1: Welcome to today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Takeda Oncology, and are grateful for their support of the Myeloma Crowd Radio show. Now before we get started, I'd like to invite you to participate in this year's Muscles for Myeloma program that starts tomorrow. So this is an online program you can join to help you get fit. In honor of Myeloma Awareness Month, which is in the month of March, Uh, This program runs through March and to the end of April. Uh, We're doing this because fitness matters for everyone, but it's especially important for myeloma patients who are segmented into fit, unfit, and frail categories. And there are some treatments they can't receive if they're not fit. So this is a national effort, and we're teaming up with academic myeloma centers. We have over 20 teams in place where myeloma researchers reside, like Memorial Sloan Kettering, MD Anderson, Mayo Clinic, and Dana-Farber, to name a few. So, each, as you get fit, you'll set your own goal. Po- you'll post that on your goal on your page and encourage your friends and family to support you to reach your goal. And in doing that, you'll be supporting the research center's myeloma academic research of uh, the team that you join. So, it's an easy program to join, um, it helps you. Uh, build new and better habits, and it can be done at any level of fitness that you're at, whether you're just coming out of transplants or you've been in remission for a while or you're currently undergoing treatment. It's really for everybody. So go to our homepage on MyelomaCrowd.org. At the bottom of the page, you'll see the links to get started for the Muscles for Myloma program, and we're just really excited to get that going tomorrow. Now on today's show, on to today's show, At the recent ASH meeting in December, I met with Dr. Heather Landau, who mentioned that amyloidosis, and that may be a tongue twister for me this whole show, um, patients are in need of a little more attention. She's an experienced myeloma specialist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and also treats this disease that can be associated with myeloma, but not necessarily so. So, though I know little about Emily um, she knows quite a bit. So we are thrilled that she can be our and our top expert on today's show. So, welcome, Dr. Landau. Uh,
0: thank you very much for the warm welcome. And I have to say that uh, I agree with you entirely about uh, muscles for myeloma and getting fit. I think that if one thing one thing patients can do for themselves. Um, to help their body tolerate both the disease and the treatment is actually keep their muscles strong. And we really have a... Um, I really strongly encourage all all parties to um, amyloid patients and multiple myeloma patients, especially pre-transplant and post-transplant, to really get on an avid exercise program, um, again, uh, at some le- whatever level of fitness could be achieved it's a benefit to you.
1: Mhm. Oh uh, yeah, we completely agree. And I know sometimes I mean coming out of transplant for me, I didn't feel like exercising at all. But um the more you do it, the the better you feel and the happier you are and the stronger you are to receive especially with long-term maintenance therapy and, you know, the need for transplant in many cases. Well, before we get started, let me just give a brief introduction for you, and then we can dig into the questions. And Dr. Landau has kind of a shortened time frame, so I think we are going to have to skip patient questions at the end and let her um, tell us when she needs to go. But um, Dr. Heather Landau is an associate member at Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center and assisting attendant physician at the Memorial Hospital in the Division of Hematologic Oncology, and the um, Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center Myeloma Program. Dr. Landau services as the Outpatient Autologous Stem Cell Transplant Service Co-Director and the Emily lloyd Multidisciplinary Group, and she's the course founder and director. She's Associate Professor of Medicine at the YL Cornell Medical College in New York, and she teaches at the Memorial Sloan-Kettering BMT Fellow Lecture Series, both about high-dose therapy and stem cell transplant for myeloma, as well as risk-adapted stem cell transplant for light chain amyloidosis. Dr. Landau has been involved in innumerable research publications and is a member of many groups for hematology, in addition to being a founding member of the Amyloidosis Research Consortium Collaborative Network. Her recent awards include the Postmasters Foundation in Hematology Course for Advanced Practice Providers, sponsored by the Oncology Nursing Society, and the Donald C. Brockman Memorial Research Grant from the Amyloidosis Foundation. So, Dr. Lando, we're so thrilled that you're here. Um, Maybe you can just give a brief, I know patients listening are probably um, amyloid patients, but maybe you could give us just an an overview of that um, as it relates to myeloma, as it relates outside of myeloma, as it relates to the light chain version, um, and just introduce it that way. Sure, my pleasure. Um,
0: So light chain amyloidosis is uh, part of a bigger spectrum of diseases um, called the systemic amyloidosis. That is that the um, end result of a misfolded protein forms an amyloid protein, um, and that amyloid deposits in organs and disrupts organ structure and function and causes uh, morbidity and mortality. So um, the, as it rel- relates to um, plasma cell diseases, light chain amyloid is the result of in a similar underlying plasma cell disorder as multiple myeloma. Um, there are too many abnormal plasma cells. Uh, more often, uh, too abnormal plasma cells exist, but not as many as we see in multiple myeloma. But they can make an abnormal light chain protein that then misfolds and causes this disease called light chain amyloidosis. the The difference um, with respect to the other systemic amyloidosis is that another precursor protein unrelated to plasma cell disorders um, can also misfold into the substance called amyloid. Most commonly, um, the protein can be a hereditary variant uh, um, as a result of a mutated protein um, or... um, Just the result of long-term, as in the case of another common disorder, used to be called senile systemic amyloidosis. Now it's called wild-type transthyretin amyloid, and that is um, as uh, patients get older, um, or as persons get older, they wild-type, non-mutated form of this protein called transthyretin can misfold and deposit in places such as the heart and the nervous system. And when we look under the microscope, uh, those patients have amyloid deposits in their heart that can't necessarily be discerned um, from amyloid related to light-chain amyloid, Um or or amyloid as a result of light-chain amyloid, um, but then we can type it and find out, oh, is this caused by a plasma cell pro- protein or this transdyretin protein or a variety of different hereditary um, mutated, her, uh, mutated proteins, um, which we're mm-hmm. finding many, many more of. Does that make
1: sense? And as I was doing some homework about um, amyloidosis in myeloma patients, it looked like it was like a 10 to 20% of myeloma patients could develop this. Are there certain causes or possible risk factors that could go on to develop this? And it sounds like what you were saying is what's called the light chain amyloidosis. is called uh, AL amy- amyloidosis yes, light instead chain, of just light regular amyloid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, light
0: chain amyloid, the confusion starts with the semantics. Light chain amyloid is also a L-amyloid, um, is also a primary systemic amyloidosis. So all of that okay. is the same thing. It means that you're starting out with a plasma cell problem in the bone marrow that's making this abnormal light chain that's misfolding into this substance called amyloid. Um, and indeed, about 10% of patients um, with multiple myeloma ha- also, as far as we know, the incidence is probably higher, but as far as we know, about 10, 10 to 20% of patients with myeloma um, have have true systemic amyloidosis, meaning um, just like multiple myeloma has previously been defined by the C.R.A.B. criteria, meaning having a plasma Mm -hmm. cell disorder that causes end organ damage, meaning it causes kidney failure or anemia or bone disease, um, or hypercalcemia, uh, as I'm sure you're familiar, um,
1: mm-hmm.
0: When because we also know that there's precursor diseases to multiple myeloma, such as MGUS and smoldering myeloma, where you can have abnormal plasma cells, but no manifestations of um, the disease, meaning no organ damage from it. Um, just uh, having a significant burden of these abnormal plasma cells. Um, So having multiple myeloma with end organ damage plus amyloid deposits causing end organ damage, the true incidence of that is about 10% of all comers with these plasma cell diseases.
1: And are there some well, patients that are more prone to to having that, or?
0: Uh, that's a good question, and we we don't really understand both the um, uh, the the driving force for the amyloid um, why light chains are able to misfold um, in. Amyloidosis, so we can't really identify those who are at higher risk. Those with light chain disease, they tend to be lambda, um, mm-hmm. where as they have their have lambda as their precursor protein, but it it does not uh, exclude patients with kappa light chains from
1: developing amyloid. Hmm, interesting, and I was reading that there's some kind of significance with. The um, the IGM, so you know you always have like IGG or IGA. um right. The IGM seems so, to be significant in some way. Yeah. So, well,
0: again, light chain amyloid is the res- is the end result, and in 98% of patients, the light chain is produced by a plasma cell disorder, and in about two mm-hmm. percent of patients there's an underlying uh lymphoproliferative disease much like waldenstrom's like a lymphoplasmacytic cell is making the precursor protein that then folds into amyloid and that's often associated with an igm paraprotein
1: hmm. okay well maybe you want to go over what treatment options are to, in today's clinic what is standard to treat this. And I know um I don't know if you're treating patients just with multiple myeloma and amyloidosis or just amyloidosis alone. But maybe you can give us an idea because it looks like some of the standard myeloma therapies are also used for this disease.
0: Yeah, so I, I think that the biggest the biggest issue is again thinking about the disease the diseases distinctly they both have an underlying plasma cell problem in the bone marrow that's making abnormal proteins <laughs> and causing organ damage. And the damage for myeloma patients are distinctly different from the damage that amyloid patients get. Um, and again, in 10%, patients will have end organ damage in, um, from both of both of the entities. And the difference is for the amyloid patients, when the amyloid deposits in organs such as the kidney, the heart, the liver, the GI system, it causes different pathophysiology. So when the myeloma protein deposits in the kidney, it often deposits in a certain place in the kidney and causes kidney, acute kidney failure. And if we treat it, that's very reversible. Uh, in patients with amyloid, the amyloid protein, the misfolded light chain, um, can deposit in a different place in the kidney and cause what we call proteinuria, loss of protein through the through the kidney. And it's it's always it's it starts out very subtle, and not often and it often goes unrecognized until it's quite advanced. So there's different pathology. Mm. Again, in myeloma patients, uh, the myeloma protein doesn't necessarily affect the heart. In amyloid patients, about uh, 50 to 60% of patients will have heart involvement. When the amyloid deposits in the heart, it causes heart failure, and it's a very difficult, Mm. especially as, As the amyloid becomes more advanced, um, it's a very difficult problem to recognize because the disease itself is under-recognized and these patients present not to the hematology clinic but to the cardiology clinic. Um, And there's lots of other more common reasons for heart failure so these patients go unrecognized. So if you think about Mm -hmm. the pathophysiology of the patients are very different. Um, Patients with amyloid having uh, kidney problems in a different way than myeloma patients do and uh, manifestations of heart failure. Then treating the disease becomes a little bit different because the, the amyloid patients tend to be a little bit more fragile in terms of mm-hmm. what they can tolerate, um, and how the drugs affect them, um, so that if we treat all comers the same, so so the drugs themselves that are active against the plasma cells, because because the first step in treating amyloidosis is shutting off the factory that's making. The amyloid protein, which is plasma cell directed therapy, which is similar to what we do in for patients with multiple myeloma um, mm-hmm. so the drugs are the drugs are similar however doses and schedules and what patients can tolerate and and there are subtle difference of what seems to be um Um, more effective or less effective in amyloid patients than in myeloma patients. But one of the most common regimens um, that patients with multiple myeloma, uh, one of the most common drugs that multiple myeloma patients receive is say Revlimid or lenalidomide. Mm-hmm. as you know, and and right. often as induction therapy, Revlimid will be given to patients with multiple myeloma at a dose of 25 milligrams a day, um, you know, during their cycle. And in amyloid patients, uh, in the phase one study, patients only tolerated up to 15 milligrams a day. So the maximum tolerated dose was quite different. So if you just look at a patient with amyloid and call them, oh, they both have plasma cells in their bone marrow, we'll treat them like multiple myeloma and give them 25 milligrams of revlimid. they suffer a lot of toxicity.
1: Hmm. Interesting. And how about trans- stem cell transplant? Is that typically used as well? Yeah. So stem cell transplant, again,
0: be before all these novel drugs were available stem cell transplant was first used for myeloma patients and uh subsequently used for amyloid patients and actually is very effective therapy can result in complete responses in about a third of patients um, and those pa- and those responses tend to be durable if you can get a complete response because uh the underlying plasma cells there's limited underlying plasma cells. it's a less proliferative disease um, but again when when you because these patients are fragile, you can use uh stem cell transplant, which is effectively using high dose melphalan. but because these patients are fragile, we use risk adapted um a pro, uh, dosing of the malphalan in order to ameliorate the toxicity. If we gave everybody malphalan at high doses without paying attention to what organs are affected by their amyloid, we would cause we would cause a lot of mortality or deaths from the mm-hmm. treatment itself. So, right. in terms of stem cell transplant, while all myeloma patients and um, amyloid patients should be treated at experienced centers, it's even more important um, for amyloid patients to be treated with stem cell transplant at very experienced centers that are familiar with amyloid patients in particular. There's a lot of uh, well, I think that's supportive a key point. care yeah. that's necessary. Um, to get patients through um, a stem cell transplant.
1: And I think this is just a general point. I mean, multiple myeloma is a rare disease by itself, so we always recommend have a myeloma expert on your team, whether you get local care by your oncologist and you're getting infusions near closer to home, but you still need um, to be treated, you know, have your care crafted really by a myeloma specialist, in my opinion. And it sounds like just because it's so difficult to diagnose that this is even more important, like you're saying for the amyloid doses do- patients that um they really have to have this because something could creep up on them that they don't, and if somebody's not watching it just because they're not familiar with it, that might happen yeah, I think it's it's a it's
0: a it's a necessity to have an amyloid expert on your team if there is a diagnosis of amyloid. And I and I agree with you, there's um multiple myeloma patients should seek expert care as well.
1: Yeah. So I, I was reading something too about allo transplant. Now it's not used very frequently in myeloma. Um is it used um in the same sort of way in the amyloid diseases? Really, um because
0: again, patients are so fragile it's the use of right. allotransplant transplant has been quite limited really, uh only mm-hmm. in Germany is it is it um more I wouldn't say routinely mm-hmm. routinely um, is um not even there is it used routinely but um they have the largest series that's been
1: uh treated with amyloid. Mm-hmm. And it looked like, I mean, you mentioned Revlimid, which is one of the immunomodulators, and like folinamide mm-hmm. is in that same family. So it looks like both those were being used. It looks like proteasome inhibitors like Velcade or I don't know if you're using Ninlaro or Carfilzomib or some of these others in there. Is yeah, that so standard care in the clinic also?
0: Yeah, so... Uh, Actually, the proteasome inhibitors, which really um, their function is to inhibit the garbage pail uh, of the cell, which is important in protein processing disorders, it, uh, patients with amyloid seem to be exquisitely sensitive to um, the proteasome inhibitors, including um, bortezomib and carfilzomib um and the oral proteasome inhibitor Nenlaro, is also is actually the first um drug that is going it, there is currently a phase 3 trial ongoing in relapsed patients and the first drug that is seeking fda approval
1: for this mm, disorder
0: there are actually no approved drugs independently uh, um, for um, approved directly for light chain amyloidosis.
1: So they're all combination therapy approvals? Or so you're saying there's no single drug that's like,
0: okay, this drug is for... There's not one drug that's approved for this disorder. So we borrow drugs from patients with multiple myeloma, but it's often hard to get, you know, again, the novel drugs are, uh, unless you're on a clinical trial, uh, you know, carfilzomib, ninlaro, um, daratumumab, these are very difficult to get for amyloid patients who don't also have multiple myeloma. Oh, I see, and again, so when in, you, the uh-huh, okay. in the amyloid community in the amyloid community if you have again, it's ten percent of patients who will have um disease manifestations from both multiple myeloma related complications and amyloid related uh deposition um But and sixty percent of patients won't qualify. um, Will have less than ten percent plasma cells in their bone marrow, so they won't. They neither have enough plasma cells to qualify them as smoldering myeloma, um, Mm -hmm. and then they don't have access to drugs if they have greater than ten percent plasma cells um they can be considered for by um for the purposes of really obtaining drugs to have multiple myeloma even though pathophysiologically they don't have um end organ damage for multiple myeloma. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And yeah, sometimes they have more access to drugs, but the 60% of patients who has less than 10% plasma cells um, really are are challenged in terms of getting novel
1: agents. So, as a specialist, do you just um, because you have expertise in this disease, do you just use off-label type thing combinations for? individual patients. I mean you're adjusting dosing like you were saying earlier with some of these standard yeah, no, therapies. And actually I encourage all patients to go
0: on clinical trials so we can actually uh, understand what we're doing. Um I yeah, at sense. my center I'm fortunate to have several clinical trials available for for patients. And yeah. um we've we've been studying in LARA, we've been studying Um We are starting to study daratumumab. We are uh, studying the very interesting um, drug uh, NEO-D001, which is actually not plasma cell-directed therapy, but is amyloid-directed therapy. I'm not oh, sure if you're familiar with that.
1: No, I'm not. But and I think is. you should talk about this because you have two studies open. Looks like one is called the Vital Study and the other is called the Pronto Study. They're using this drug. So yes. I think this is really key for patients to understand. So maybe you just can explain more about what that drug is and how it works. Yes.
0: Yeah. So this is a really novel and exciting time for amyloid patients um, because. Even though we treat the, again, I said that um, in order to treat amyloid, you have to shut off the factory that's making the amyloid protein, and um, that's with plasma cell-directed therapy. So once we get rid of the plasma cells, there's no longer any more plasma cell, uh, more light chain deposits, but it does not get rid of the resident amyloid that still exists in organs. And so for Mm -hmm. patients with amyloid to get better, you have to shut off the factory um, and then allow their... And then over time, meaning months to years, the organs can recover sometimes. Um, The kidneys usually do. The GI tract usually does. The... um, Nervous system uh, can also recover. The heart is the one organ that um, doesn't typically recover, even if you shut off the factory that's making the the abnormal protein. And so the antibody that we're studying is called NEOD001. It's an antibody against the amyloid protein, and it binds to the amyloid that's already been deposited and neutralizes. Um, It's thought to neutralize circulating precursor proteins so that um, the immune system then can recognize those proteins as foreign and clear the proteins from the organs and from circulation so that the organs can improve. And in the initial Trial the phase one two trial where we treated um, 27 patients on the on the uh, phase one dose escalation study and 42 more patients in the expansion cohort. Um, These were all patients who had their disease controlled initially with plasma cell directed therapy, and then we gave them the antibody as a single agent because. There was no safety um, mm-hmm. data yet for the for the drug, and we couldn't study it in combination. So this is how the trial had to be designed. And um, when we gave them the antibody, we saw organ responses in over 50% of patients with heart disease using biomarkers as... which is the established marker for uh, using cardiac biomarkers, which is the established um, biomarker to uh, detect organ improvement. Um, So over 50% of patients with cardiac involvement and over 60% of patients with kidney involvement um, had improved organ function when we used this antibody um in patients who who already had their disease controlled with plasma cell directed therapy um uh, so now the pro- yeah the pronto study is a randomized study um placebo controlled in order to prove that it actually works, and that um it wasn't just because of the prior therapy that the patients received. Um, you have to do a randomized study, so half the patients are getting uh the um the neo d zero zero one drug, and the half the patients are getting placebo on that trial, and that's almost fully accrued. The vital trial is using the neo d zero zero one along with combination chemotherapy with the cyborg d regimen. Um, or Velcade-based therapy to um, plus-minus the NEOD-001 in the upfront setting. Um, And I would encourage patients who may be eligible um, for either study to reach out to centers that are conducting these studies. Um, It's often, um, again, challenging... for for drugs, it's been challenging for drugs to get approved because of the rarity of the condition. And so Mm -hmm. patients who are eligible for studies uh, not only get access to the most novel agents, but also um, help further the research so that we can understand and get drugs, understand the drugs, that have potential promise for this population and also um, you know seek drug FDA drug FD, uh FDA approval for the first time.
1: Mhm. And this is um, one of the reasons that we that I started this show is because I wanted to have patients join clinical trials because that's something that we can do to get things done faster. And you know, one of the myeloma exactly. doctors pointed out, to me, yeah, pointed out to me at the beginning that um, you know the difference between adult cancer patients are joining at a rate of like three to five percent participation rates, and kids and childhood you know cancers are joining at 85 percent rates, and how much faster the research happens just because of participation. So uh, we will definitely add links to those two studies uh, when we post this show. And um, we have partnered with a a clinical trial finder for myeloma that um, helps people ease them through the process because it's not an easy process to, you know, find and and join a clinical trial. Yeah, the the other trial that would be it. For amyloid patients that other things like like carfilzomib, like you mentioned, and um, daratumumab and things. I was also seeing venetoclax. How are how is daratumumab being used right now? And then how, are, how is um carfilzomib and venetoclax being used in clinical studies? So um,
0: let's start with carfilzomib because that's the only drug that has um, been studied in amyloid, and we completed a phase one study where we treated uh, 28 patients with um, amyloid, with carfilzomib at escalating doses, and this was presented as an oral presentation at ASH this year by Adam Cohen. Um, And the response rate was upwards of 70%, uh, and the depth of response was high as well. Uh, The issue with carfilzomib is that there are, there's some cardiac toxicity associated in myeloma patients and as well in amyloid patients. So understanding the safety in that population is is, is really key. Um, mm-hmm. And so while we think it's effective um, based on the preliminary data, we also would... Like to get a better sense of who is going to suffer toxicity, and um, that's the real challenge with that drug. Um, Daratumumab is the anti CD38 antibody that's now recently been improved for multiple myeloma patients, and it's really been uh, a boon for that population. Uh, Again, it's – there are limited data in patients with amyloid – actually, um, at the International Amyloid Symposium in Sweden this summer, uh, Michaela Litke presented 18 patients um, and the response rates were upward of 80%. With in a very mm-hmm. refractory p- patient population with the single agent, so we do think that this is a very effective drug for this population, but um, it is not yet available. So, uh, as I understand it, the Jan- Janssen is will have a company sponsored. Phase three randomized and newly diagnosed patients up and running by the second quarter of 2017. So newly diagnosed patients can also be um, looking out for that for that trial. Um,
1: and are there open there are clinical trials for like relapse refractory patients? With uh, Sarah,
0: not, not as not as of mm-hmm. yet. Um, there are two that are um that are soon to be open at, one at Boston one at MD Anderson I believe and we are going to have one in combination with uh the image um, uh shortly thereafter um but not not readily available um okay well, and I see why Vanita, you
1: feel, feel passionate about this patient group. <laughs> they need extra attention.
0: Yeah. And lastly, Vanita Clax is now being studied by, uh, by uh, has shown incredible activity in multiple myeloma, particularly in the patients with translocation 1114 um, by virtue of their the mechanism of action of venetoclax Clax. And so the um because that's a common translocation in amyloid patients, the most common translocation amyloid patients, it's being studied by Dr. Comenzo at Tufts. And I would encourage patients, um the this uh his study is for relapse patients and that has recently been uh open. So relapsed refractory patients can seek uh, uh um study uh can see if they're eligible for his study um in Boston.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's patients and suggest, should. you would suggest patients just with the eleven fourteen translocation with myeloma and amyloid? I don't think we know that or I think I, I think so it's just that there are patients is, with eleven fourteen and amyloid or or I don't yeah. Maybe you could I, explain I, that a little more. I did,
0: yeah, I think that um I think that the study is actually is actually uh going to is it, available to patients who have both the eleven fourteen translocation and um and not because the pathway is upregulated, um, we believe, oh. in, in light chain amyloidosis. So oh, okay. I don't think that, um, but I'm not positive if Dr. Comenzo's study is limited to patients with 1114 translocation. I think that he is accepting all comers. Mm, okay. That makes sense. And the, my, and and the myeloma I thought, patients uh-huh, that sorry. were studied were all comers as well. And there is some activity, albeit less, but some activity in the patient population who does not have a detectable 11-14 translocation. All
1: right. Okay, that makes sense. I also saw that you had a study open for captisol enabled melphalan. Maybe you want to explain that because I'm not familiar with that.
0: Yeah, so actually that is a new formulation of melphalan uh, called Evomela. It is, um, it's really uh, the same drug, the same melphalan that's packaged differently. So uh, the delivery is actually, when we give high-dose melphalan, we um it's a very unstable molecule so it has to get in the patient within 60 minutes and there's breakdown and there's risk mm-hmm. of underdosing and we don't typically measure the level of the melfont we haven't been able to and we we typically don't um know how much drug is being delivered to each patient uh so captisol enabled Malphalan is packaged differently; it's more stable product. It's um, supposed to be safer because it um, it's propylene glycol free, um, which is what regular methylane is packaged in, um, and so they're it's more stable and, and potentially less toxic than regularly available melphalan. And so we are doing a study where in both myeloma patients and amyloid patients, we are trying to target a specific uh, concentration in each patient in order to kind of target a sweet spot of where in using high-dose therapy patients have the most efficacy and the least toxicity. And we can do that using this product, which it's more stable and we can measure it in the blood of our patients so that we can direct, uh, have PK or, or pharmacokinetically directed um, dosing of the drug in order to try to improve safety. Um tolerability and um, balance that with efficacy.
1: Mhm. Great. Well, it sounds like you have so much going on at Memorial Sloan Kettering. It's exciting what you're doing. I know you have a hard stop and I know we have some caller questions, but what I think I'll ask them to do is um, email me with their questions and then I'll email them to you and maybe you can respond and then we'll add them to the final show. Um, post. But is there anything that you want to leave amyloid patients with uh, in terms of recommendations of what they do or watch for or what type of treatment that they get before we close? I I
0: think really um, what we started with is what I'll leave you with. Number one, uh, stay active and again the best thing that you can do for yourself is keep Your body strong um, in order to be able to tolerate the disease and the treatment, and um, if possible. And the other thing is to seek treatment at an expert center by an expert who has access to what may be available and also the supportive care that's necessary for. Patients, um, there are subtle differences, as I mentioned, in patient in treating patients with multiple myeloma and light chain amyloidosis, and it really takes some expertise to really understand that and um, treat patients with heart failure and protein loss, and use tricks of the trade like compression garments and certain diuretics. Uh, and things that we don't often think of as oncologists um, who are just treating oncologic problems but not the same pathophysiology as patients mm-hmm. with amyloid have mm-hmm.
1: well great so. well we we are so grateful that you're taking that you took time um to talk with us about this important disease, and um I would stress again that it's It's true. I mean, especially with a situation where there are not a lot of clinical trials being run or not a lot of approved drugs yet for these patients, it's absolutely critical that they join clinical trials um, so that you can do your work more quickly. And instead of taking, you know, 10 years to come to conclusions, you can come to conclusions in one or two years.
0: So Uh, I would agree with that. Thank you for all you're
1: doing. Thank you for joining our show today.
0: The, so the uh, as you mentioned, the vital study and the Pronto study are accruing. I think that anybody who is eligible for the Ninlaro study, which is the oral proteasome inhibitor, that it's been difficult to accrue to that study, but it's a very important study um, because if if you are an amyloid patient but have not had Bortezomib or Velcade before, then I then uh, that would be a great trial for you. Um, and any, any other studies that are that you are eligible for, I think that it's really a win-win for both the patient um, and the field and as a whole.
1: Well, terrific. Well, we will include links to all those studies in our final show. And um, okay. just are so appreciative for what you're doing for this patient group. And thank
0: you, Jenny, for all, of, all that you do
1: Well, Have a great thank day. you And take care Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today And thank you for listening To another episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio um, Join us next time To learn more about what's happening In myeloma research And what it means for you
0: And join us
1: starting tomorrow If you haven't already For our Muscles for Myeloma program For this year